How blessed it is that you and I have been given the privilege to assemble in the way that we are this evening. We're so thankful that God has looked upon us with favor, that He's allowed us to gather in His name on this first day of the week for a second opportunity today to look not only into His Word, but to be encouraged by song, to bless His name in that same way, and in fact, as we're honored to gather in that way tonight. For the next few moments, we'll turn our attention during this part of our service to another one of the minor prophets. We have been taking them in the order in which they appear in the Bible. They didn't always a chronological order in which those matters were written. But we come tonight to installment number seven in the series, and it's the prophet Nahum. Would you please be turning to that little minor prophet book? It's only three chapters, so it might be difficult in some senses to find it. It's probably only a page and a half or so in the Bible. But nonetheless, we find in it some matters that might begin our discussion by way of this introductory slide that's now before you. May we never lose sight of the fact that all those Old Testament books fall under a beautiful heading that may well begin like this. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope, Romans 15, 4. And as if that passage weren't encouraging enough, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, we're reminded that all those things were written as examples to us. Thus, we can learn something from Nahum. We perhaps can learn a number of things from that book, and we'll seek at least tonight to highlight some of the wonderful truths to be found in that little three-chapter book. One last thing on that slide would be this one. The Minor Prophets, although that name unfortunately sometimes is associated with them, May we not lose sight of the fact that they were an inspired part of the Word of God. And so they're not minor in terms of the truth they contain. They're only minor in terms of their length compared to some other Bible books. What about Nahum? On this next slide, I'm going to invite you to note some introductory information. In many ways, a broad brush stroke that might be useful to us as we give some thought to this little book of Nahum. First of all, as far as when it was written, as nearly as we're able to tell, and there are not things in this book that can so easily date it as can be true of others, but we do know from the subject matter contained that we have to be close. When we state from about 610 to 615 B.C., along in that line, you and I would anticipate the efforts of writing of the prophet Nahum. Again, we'll highlight in a moment some of the ways that we know that. But the opening verse of the book tells us this. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. Immediately, we're challenged by noting that Nahum apparently came from a little village called Elkosh. But sadly, we do not know where that village is. And therefore, that's a little bit unusual, at least in some regards, but not only that, notice that the first four words of the entire book are these, the burden of Nineveh. That's the entire theme. That's the subject. That's the matter addressed throughout the entirety of this book. We're told it in the opening verse of the opening chapter. It is a three-chapter presentation about the characteristic destruction of Nineveh. What led up to it, the features that brought it about, and God's judgment in regard to bringing, in terms of making it so. Therefore, if you wish to underline something, that little set of four words will characterize for us the fullness and the directness of that little book. It only has 47 verses, divided in three chapters. This might be an opportune time 
to at least recollect something. Probably the name Nineveh sounds familiar. We've already encountered that name in one of the earlier prophetical minor books. Let's revisit it like this. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And at this time, they were the ruling empire in that part of the world. Mighty, violent, cruel, strong. No one, in fact, had been able to address them, challenge them, and defeat them. In fact, even offer them a great deal of, shall we say, challenge. They had risen after they had conquered the Medes and the Persians. And yet, as you give thought to these Assyrians, you realize that that next statement is the one that readily comes before us. They had been the ones that conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. They were the ones that were still the ruling authority in that part of the world. But now in this book we find the direct record of an angry God promising and directly assuring that vengeance will be brought upon this nation, the Assyrian nation, because that they had not done what God wanted them to do. As far as where we've heard it before, it's the book of Jonah. You no doubt recollect Jonah. God told Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh. And at first he did not go. However, after spending some time in the belly of a great fish, he changed his mind. And then when God commissioned him, he did go that time. Upon his preaching, they repented. And God spared Nineveh then. We are now 130 years later. A century and almost a third have passed since Jonah preached to them and they repented, but now they are not repentant. Now they are not interested in turning to the Lord. Now they have no interest in those matters. And now God promises in the little book of Nahum. In some ways, this is a sequel to the book of Jonah. Surely as you and I close that slide... I've asked you to notice it's entirely proper to think about dividing the chapters this way. Chapter number 1 of Nahum declares the decree of the destruction of Nineveh. Chapter 2 presents the description of the destruction of Nineveh. And chapter number 3 makes easily known to us how that Nineveh deserved that destruction. Decreed, described, and finally, in that last chapter, deserved. And with that said, let's all turn our attention to chapter 1. In this opening chapter, I believe you and I would be impressed to note that a signature and powerful element that's pertaining to this chapter turns out to be the description of God. You and I serve such a great God. A God who in this chapter is characterized by all the ways we're now about to see. I found it rather amazing to reflect upon Nahum chapter 1 and find in it that though the destruction of Nineveh is under discussion, the characteristics of God take center stage. Look at some of the things mentioned. I'll certainly not read the entirety of that opening chapter, but as I point out some of these things, look at verse number 3. God is slow to anger. And aren't you and I thankful for the patience and the long-suffering character of God? In 2 Peter 3 verse 15, the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. You and I recognize that without His patience. Can you e easily imagine how frustrated He might become with you and me, given that we sometimes fall into similar sins from which He's forgiven us before? 
And yet here, he had extended the hand of forgiveness to Nineveh again a century and somewhat more earlier. But now he brings his wrath to them. Though he was slow to anger, Nineveh no longer repents. Nineveh no longer serves the Lord as she once did. You might notice the next thing on that slide is this. Doesn't it remind us of the God of heaven today? The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What else do we learn in that same verse? Not only is God slow to anger, we are told His power is great. Wouldn't you agree Nineveh seemed to be a very strong and mighty city, powerful, unassailable, and yet the God of heaven declared, I shall bring you down, and Nineveh was unable to thwart the wrath of God. That should at least remind us about the power of God indeed. Didn't Jesus remind us in Matthew 19, 26, that with God all things are possible? Did not Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 32, 17, that the right arm of the Lord is almighty? And so it is. That even here, Nineveh was no threat to overwhelm God. Notice what else we learn in this same chapter. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind, verse number 3. God has His way. God's will shall be accomplished. You and I recognize that as often as the Word of God declares, and it does in passages such as Psalm 66, 7, that the greatness of the Lord will take place in the character of the, of the dealings of man. Surely to that we could add Daniel 4, 25, that the Lord rules in the kingdoms of men. Today, as you and I perhaps take a great deal of comfort in that thought, aren't we reminded that even the great city of Nineveh is such that God was going to have His way? What about in the fourth place? Same verse. He will not at all acquit the wicked. Don't you find that such a comforting statement? Sometimes men, in fact often men, make mistakes in that light. Perhaps men hear some evidence and they make a judgment. But they didn't hear all the evidence. There are features that can be brought that would lead to an entirely different verdict. That kind of a mistake is an honest one. There are other times when men are deliberately dishonest. Perhaps a judge can be bribed. Perhaps other individuals in positions of authority can be bribed to deliver a verdict that they know is not right. Can't you and I appreciate the fact that God will never, ever acquit the wicked? The wicked will not be able to get off scot-free. The wicked will not be able to avoid the matter of God's judgment. Because Nahum declared here and so many other places the Bible does the same, that God will never ever acquit the wicked. Let's add another one to that list. You notice also in verse number 2, God is jealous. Now there are times that you and I look upon the word jealous... And as you and I reflect upon it, we appreciate the fact it's used in a couple of different senses in the Word of God, isn't it? There are times when jealousy is completely right. For instance, a husband ought to be jealous over his wife. He does not want to share her with anybody else in the same way that she doesn't want to share him with anyone else. 
It's in that sense that God alone is the ruler of this universe. He made it. He created it. He created everything in it. He does not share the matter of worship with anyone or anything else. He doesn't share that degree of attention because no one else deserves it. Nothing else deserves it. It was in that way that in Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments were given, that declaration was set forth, God is jealous. There thus are to be no graven images of any kind in heaven above and earth beneath. That jealousy is highlighted as you and I reflect upon the sweetness of our God. Let's close that slide this way. Verse number 2, it goes on to say, The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries. You and I recognize there that God will take vengeance. He's long-suffering. He gives them an opportunity to turn, to repent, to change. But eventually those opportunities will run out. Those who continue to choose to remain adversaries to Him will be such that they will be the recipients of His vengeance upon them for the choices that they made. When you and I come to the New Testament, isn't it true that that same topic is mentioned in Romans 12? You and I are not to take vengeance because you and I can certainly make mistakes in that regard. But God's always right. The next slide will add some more matters to this. Inasmuch as this chapter has more to say, again, verse number 2, the Lord revengeth, revengeth, and is furious. That word furious, it literally means in this context, the owner of wrath. May we never lose sight of the fact that our God owns wrath. He is justly able to present it. He is rightly able to make it so in causes for which His infinite wisdom leads to that appreciation. Now you and I notice as these matters are revealed in the little book of Nahum, God's judgment on Assyria was right. They had earned the kind of punishment that they were not going to receive, and it was right. That same thing, by the way, will be true at the day of judgment. Those who are cast into an eternal hell have earned justly that which they shall then receive. It's not as if God somehow makes a mistake, sends them to a place that's not deserved. Note furthermore in verse number 7 of this same chapter, the Lord is good. The Lord is good. There should be no question about that. And you and I today recognize the greatness and His goodness. And it's true that right now upon earth there are many who do not at least acknowledge that goodness. But may we be quick to say they shall do that on the day of judgment. Admitting then the very words of Philippians chapter 2. They'll confess at that time that Jesus Christ is Lord. It shall do them little good, but at least they'll recognize that God was good enough to offer to them the opportunity to be saved. And the fact that they're not is not God's fault. It's their fault. But God is good. Doesn't that remind us of what the Lord Himself said? There's none good but one, that is God, stated both in Luke 18 as well as in the Gospel according to Matthew as well. The last two on that slide. Could I point you to verse number 7? God is a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. He is a stronghold, a fortress 
upon which one can lean, a citadel, a bulwark, to which one can recognize the safety and security that He offers. I hope you and I, all of us, recognize and enjoy the stronghold of the Lord today, that He will keep your life and mine if we will walk faithfully to Him. As far as all of that, how about wrapping it up then in verse 7? He knoweth them that trust in Him. You and I take great honor that we know God, but aren't you even more delighted that He knows you? That He is familiar with you and acquainted with you, and He seeks to uphold you just as He did Job. I find it interesting that that in many ways is quoted in 2 Timothy 2 verse 19. God knows those that are His. Paul wrote that in the New Testament. This opening chapter has been a reminder that even though Nineveh is such that her punishment is shortly to come, we find God's character taking center stage. At this point, let's turn to chapter number 2. What do we find then in this chapter that even further presents to us a description of that destruction of Nineveh, which is shortly to take place? It is safe to say that Nineveh had defeated many nations. Many peoples had been crushed beneath the war machine that was ancient Assyria. But now, her adversary was not merely other people on earth. Her adversary was God. And she was not going to win this battle. She was not going to overwhelm and overcome the God of heaven. And this chapter has many things to say that remind us of the occurrence of that truth. Look at Nahum chapter 2 verse 13. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messenger shall no more be heard. God said, I'm against you, Nineveh. I'm against you for what you have done, and here's a sampling of what shall now come your way. Don't you find it intriguing? That in Nahum 2, beginning in verse number 1, we find there's some powerful advice given on the part of Nahum toward these Assyrians, these people of Nineveh. He that dasheth in pieces is come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy power mightily. Nahum encourages her, that is to say Nineveh, to be mindful and to fortify herself to be aware of that which is occurring all the while. Try as she may, God's judgment was on the way. At this point, I didn't finish that chronology a moment ago. I did raise the thought. Nahum wrote this between 615 and 610 B.C. It was going to be just a very few years, a very few years, that in fact Nineveh's destruction was going to come. About 606... You notice we are now less than even a decade. As you look further into this chapter, look at verse number 2. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. God makes note that you'll appreciate here. The excellency of Jacob in that northern kingdom of Assyria, I'm sorry, of Israel, they had already been defeated. And Assyria had done it. But now, God's turning His attention against these Assyrians. Look even further in the chapter. Verse number 7, And Huzzab 
shall be led away captive, and she shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as with a voice of doves, tabering upon their breasts. I've asked you to notice on that slide, Huzzah means the assured ones, the confident ones. In the past, Assyria had been so confident of herself. And now, and now, that confidence would not be able to continue. She would be defeated. And when these enemy nations were to come, oh, how mighty would be the fall of Assyria. Let's look even further in chapter number 2. Verse number 10, She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all loins, and the faces of them all gather blackness. Here's a portrait of what Assyria is going to be like. Void, empty, waste. Secular history does record to some extent that when the overruling nations came and overran her, it was a devastating defeat. Nineveh was crushed. May I point out, Nahum had said this not too many years before that event actually took place. Isn't that another reminder of the beauty of Bible prophecy? When history was written before its time, reminding us that only God could have written it, men couldn't have done it. You and I don't know exactly what will happen tomorrow, much less a decade from now, much less a hundred years from now, much less a thousand years from now. And yet sometimes the prophets reveal these matters in exquisite detail. As you and I revisit this second chapter, notice down near the bottom. I've asked you to notice again verse number 9. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. The fine pieces that occupied Nineveh were going to be taken, looted, carried off to some foreign place. God said that was going to happen. At this point, as the description of these things are thus put before us, it points us to chapter number 3. So why did God judge Nineveh this way? What had she done? I've asked you to notice on this slide before us, some more elements of that set of descriptive matters provided to us in relation to this, to this destruction. You and I have already discussed some matters of what's on that slide. But could I point out that what Assyria had done to Egypt and even to others was now going to be done to her? The lesson text that I asked to be read tonight that Brother Mike read just a moment ago was in the eighth verse of this chapter. Let's now cast a spotlight upon it and give some attention to what we see. Nineveh was like, an, like a pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Clearly there was a time that Nineveh was a rather great place. It was that way in the, way of, in the day of Jonah. When Jonah went there, we find in the chapters 2 and 3 of that book, what a great description of the city of Nineveh. But you'll notice it wasn't that way anymore. It was now about to be crushed and defeated. And it said, Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Can you picture it? It's as if criers were on the wall pleading with other nations to help us, pleading with others to come to our rescue and aid us in the defeat of Egypt who is now bearing down on us. And none of them are even going to look back. 
Sometimes we have to be careful of our friends, don't we? Maybe we'll suppose they'll be there to aid us in our time of need, and yet maybe they won't be. All of Nineveh's friends, you see, were not going to be present. We're not going to be aidful. We're not going to be helpful during the time of that onslaught. Surely in all that light, we're ready to look at chapter number 3 in which we can now highlight things that begin like this. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. Verse 1 of chapter 3. The bloody city. We've already noted that Nineveh was given to violence. They would kill people without reason. They would take the lies of the innocent. God was aware of it. He was mindful of those choices. And you and I today, I know that we are urgent in our consideration for our nation as well as others who seemingly have had interest in killing those that are innocent, be it babies or otherwise. Thankfully, it seems as if our nation has at least made a step in the right direction for the preservation of the lives of the innocent, those babes in the wombs of their mothers. But yet Nineveh was not known for that, and God judged her in part because of it. The bloody city also was such that they were full of robbery and lies. They would steal from others, and thievery was the order of the day. Notice that lying was also of that same order. Our God looks with great disdain upon those who do not recognize the value of truth, even in regard to their interactions one with the other. Here Nineveh was given to lying. Don't you and I remember that in the New Testament, in the book of Titus, something like that is mentioned with regard to the island of Crete. Those people were also given to lying, and God wasn't pleased with it. Today, are you and I a person of truth, speaking truth with our neighbor, Ephesians 4, verse 25? When Zechariah spoke of that in Zechariah 8, 16, how valuable it was to be a person who was demanding of truth. May you and I not be given to lying. Our world has been led to suppose there's such a thing as a little white lie. That you see is a falsehood. All lying is wrong. All of it. There's not some that might be seen as okay. There's not some that might be seen as acceptable in the eyes of God. Here you notice Nineveh was given to it. Look at the next verse. The noise of the whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. Here's a portrait of what's coming. The enemy was going to bring chariots and as they came, they were going to be large in number, and the result was going to be a strong defeat. I've asked you to notice on that slide, furthermore, the following. It's rather interesting to appreciate that there's a great multitude described in the words you'll see in verse 4. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Notice that one thing, those people, those Assyrians had an interest in witchcraft, in witchery, sorcery and the like. And God judged them because of this. Did you know what else though was a part of that same verse? Sexual sin under the matter of whoredom. Our God looks with disfavor upon sexual sin. 
And you and I know how rampant that kind of thing has become in our world at large and in our country in particular. The sadness, the tragedy certainly is great indeed. God judged ancient Nineveh in part for that. Not only that, notice what follows. I am against thee, verse 5, saith the Lord of hosts, I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. It is often portrayed in the Word of God, isn't it, that when nakedness is presented, it should be a shameful thing. It's sad that quite often that seems not to be true in the literal sense. People can dress nakedly and seem not even to blush. But it's supposed to be a matter of great disgrace. God said, when I bring destruction upon you, Nineveh, it will be a matter proclaiming your shame. And an understanding that what you've done to others will now be brought yourself upon you. Look at the next verse. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile. And I will set thee as a gazing stock. Nineveh was going to take center stage in her destruction. Others would look and revile and in fact be able to appreciate the grandeur of her destruction. A gazing stock. Some of the things history records is exactly along that line. Look at the questions of verse 8. Art thou better than populous? No. That was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubim were thy helpers. And so God recollects in the marvel of that passage, these other places such as No. Do you think you're better than No? No had already been destroyed by this time. Do you think you're better than they? That you can somehow survive? That's not all. Those mentions in verse number 9, Ethiopia and Egypt. You'll appreciate with me that some of the things noted that these other nations that are herein described lead us to appreciate even on that next slide. What a challenge some of that is to you and me today. As we are prayerful about our country, mindful that as God could rain judgment upon a nation like Assyria, what about the United States of America? And what about the other nations on the planet? It's needful for every nation to be filled with citizens who have an interest in God and who turn their attention in rightness to the appreciation of His will, honoring that which is true, turning attention to rightness with respect to basic morality. We have come to a time in our nation when we uphold immorality. What is not moral, we proclaim as natural and normal and acceptable and approved and shame on us. Because God has never said that, that it, it is that way. On that slide, I've asked you to note one final thing. There are some similar descriptions in the very last book in all the Bible to that which we've seen here. It's in Revelation, the 18th chapter. There Rome was under description, the destruction of Rome was under presentation, and many of the things which are mentioned here are the very same matters for which she was judged. At the very least, you and I can be thankful for the consistency of the judgment of the God of heaven. He doesn't just change His mind. Many years ago, a gentleman visited our country. This was in the latter part of the 1800s. 
in the 1870s, as I recall, he came. His interest was this. He was from France. The French people by that time were in a very difficult circumstance. The area, if you please, of the Enlightenment had happened. Napoleon had fought his wars and things had not turned out well. Their country was not filled with purity. It wasn't filled with the order of enlightenment like the United States was. Alexis de Tocqueville came to this country. His sole mission was to see on a ready basis what makes America so great. America had just finished the Civil War not that many years earlier. And yet, the other parts of the world recognized the greatness of our country. There was a sustaining glory connected to us. A people who had a consideration of rightness. He wanted to know, what made America so great? If you ever have a chance to read the book, you might find it intriguing. Only one statement out of it is all I'll, all I'll quote. America is great because America is good. All he had to do in order to appreciate the greatness of our land was to appreciate the flaming Word of God that bolted forth from the pulpits of our land. That's what made America great. That's at least his sentiment of the matter. If America ceases to follow the Word of God, she will cease to be great. In some ways, we have already walked a fair distance from that truth. We've turned our attention to other things quite often ourselves. And yet, isn't it still the same as we read in Jeremiah 10, 23? Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Our study of Nahum tonight has caused us, I would hope, to be reminded of three things. First, the character of God from chapter 1. Secondly, the consideration that God does bring destruction in His wrath upon those who do not honor and obey Him. And finally, that destruction will be deserved by those who receive it. We have seen that that did happen to Nineveh just as Nahum prophesied. It came to pass in all the detail He presented. And that should be another confidence to you and me that the Bible is the Word of God. It could be tonight someone in this assembly might have reached a point in life wherein you would wish to honor God because in your life that has not been done of late. You've turned your attention to other sources, other powers, other ways of living, and you have begun to reap the sad dividends of those choices. You know it's not going to turn out well, and it probably has already begun. You can make changes that are right. You can come back to your first love. You can again find a rightful place in truth and justice next to the one who died for you. We'd be delighted to offer assistance and help tonight. We'd be honored to assist in whatever way we might be able to do that. If you've never become a Christian, don't you want to begin the walk that will lead to everlasting life? Believe on the Lord, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. Upon so doing, live faithfully until death. And so it is that if someone tonight has begun that walk, but as of tonight things are not well, come back. The Lord with open arms is ready to receive you. 
just like that father of the prodigal son in the 15th chapter of the gospel according to Luke. Tonight, if we could be of help or assistance, a song of encouragement has been chosen, and we'll use this as an opportune time to invite you to come while together we stand and while we sing.